Welcome to episode three of the Sonia Looney Show. And as usual, I'm your host, Sonia Looney. And today I'm lucky to have my husband here, Matt Iwanis, as a co-host. Hello, everybody. We just got back from Australia and it was awesome. We were there for a wedding, Matt's best friend, Dean. Uh, we were in Noosa, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was awesome to go across the ocean and get a chance to see the trails over there, but also hang out with some good friends I haven't spent enough time with uh, since university. So it was great. Yeah, the landscape in Australia is so different from over here in North America where we live. I mean, there weren't any large mountains or pine trees. They had all these crazy jungle foliage everywhere. Yeah, there were large spiders, though. <laughs> yeah, you almost... <laughs> I almost got taken out by a spider in about on day two, but... Yeah, his face almost went into this giant spider web, and there was like a four-inch big... What do you think is even bigger than that? Spider. Yeah, almost the size of my hand, yeah. Yeah, so crazy. Yeah, you're just not used to it. Yeah, but no, I loved Australia. The beaches were incredible. The weather was amazing. You know, if there was bigger mountains there, Australia would have been would have been perfect. But no, it was it was incredible. And the coffee, oh my gosh! Like we love coffee, and like every single place, every cafe, literally, you could not find a place that made a bad coffee. And we're we're pretty snobby, so that's a pretty big statement. Yeah, you'd think that the Pacific Northwest, with the birthplace of sort of craft coffee, would be better. But I'd have to say Australia and actually New Zealand as well would would outpace even the best areas in the U.S. and Canada for coffee. So it was impressive, really impressive. Yeah, Christchurch has awesome coffee, too. Mm. Like, I, I miss that. We had a great time there, too. Yeah. It's been a good year. Yeah, no kidding. Lots of time in Oceana. Yeah, maybe that's our new second home. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> yes. So for today's podcast, it is early in my podcast life here. And I wanted to kind of tell you guys my story. I know that some of you guys that follow me have been following me for a very long time, and maybe some of you are brand new today just listening to this podcast. So I thought I would kind of tell how I got into cycling and how I've gotten to a place in my life where I've gotten. A quick background is I've been a pro mountain biker for about a decade, and I started racing cross country and then started doing endurance followed by ultra endurance. And there was a point where I just really wanted to become a pro and it just seemed like I was beating my head against the wall and it was my dream. And somehow, and I, I know how, but somehow I managed to achieve this crazy, crazy life I, I really always wanted and even go past that. So I really wanted to tell the story of where I came from and how I got here because it's really important for everybody to know that you can do whatever you want. And a lot of times we build our own ceiling. We set our own limits and I do it all the time. I still do it. And Matt reminds me that I'm building a ceiling over my head and we are our own biggest limitation. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited today to not only to hear your story, which obviously I'm pretty familiar with, but to dig a little deeper. And I know there's always fun little nuggets that come out of that where, where I get an opportunity to, to hear things that I haven't even heard before. So as your husband, I'm, I'm excited to hear the whole story right from the beginning. Yeah, like Matt's been such a huge, huge inspiration for me in my life. He's really taken me to another level because he believes in me. And having somebody in my life that really, truly believed in me 100%. And I'm not bashing my friends or family. You guys are all awesome. But it was just really different whenever I met Matt. It really set me on a trajectory that I never thought would happen. 
Yeah, and it was the same thing for me. I think we were lucky to find a special connection that that both of us could do that for each other. So it was it was really helpful for me, and and my life dramatically changed at the same time, and for all the same reasons. Just whether you're an athlete or whether you're you know quote an everyday Joe along the way, to have someone believe in you so completely is amazing. So I wish that uh, for all of you if you don't already have it. Yeah. So the story is today. There's a theme that comes out. I was trying to figure out, I don't want to just, you know, talk about myself. That's kind of boring, but I want to tell people about the themes that have come out repeatedly in my life. And those are self-belief. And that comes from a willingness to try and a willingness to fail. So I'll start at the beginning. So I said, as I said, my name is Sonia Looney. I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I am not the person that you would assume I was growing up. I did not ride a bike growing up. I learned how to ride a bike. And the only memory, I have two memories of riding a bike as a kid. One of them was my first crash. (laughs) And I was in a parking lot and I grabbed the rear brake in the corner, like full lockup. And I just crashed, like just fell over. And I remember my dad saying, don't break in the corner. And which is still a theme that we, we both have. Still very good advice. <laughs> Don't break in the corner. I always try to take my fingers off the brakes in the corner just to try and stop myself, but it doesn't always work. And the second bike memory I have is the day that I knew I was riding without training wheels. My dad used to hold on to the back of my bike. and um, There's a little handle on this banana seat and run behind me. And I remember I looked back and I saw that he was down the street and I had ridden the length of the street by myself. And I, I think I probably crashed after that or something. <laughs> But I remember that moment very clearly, and I was really young, but it was just crazy that day because it's like that feeling of, oh my gosh, I did it. I'm actually doing this. And it's just amazing, number one, that my dad spent the time to teach me to ride a bike, and that's a really special memory that I'll always have. But just that moment of, I'm actually doing it. And we get that every day, actually, in technical riding, too, whenever you, well, maybe not every day, but that's why I love it because you're like afraid to do this thing. And then you ride over a rock, maybe uphill, or there's some crazy thing downhill you want to ride. And that feeling of, whoa, I just conquered that. I did it. I did it. That doesn't really happen very much in our lives unless we're willing to try something we're afraid to do. Absolutely. And I think that's stepping outside your comfort zone, but in a way that's supported, right? Whether it's your father helping you ride a bike or whether it's you know, in your everyday life or on on your bike to have the support and to do it in a safe way is obviously important as well. But yeah, to push yourself out of that comfort zone and, and achieve something is pretty special. Yeah, for sure. So I won't really talk about like elementary school and stuff because that's not that exciting. I love playing basketball. I play basketball at recess <laughs> with the boys every day. And I thought I was going to be a basketball player, maybe, even though I never really played basketball. Like, I've still never played a real game to this day. <laughs> Matt played basketball in college, so that, that's why that's so funny for him. <laughs> I know. We're, there's still a lot of trash talk going on, regardless of the lack of playing. So we'll see. One of these days, we'll have to have a, a game, one-on-one. Just yeah, to see. right. It's like taking candy from a baby. <laughs> yeah. So in high school... You know, I just wasn't the person that I am today at all. And hopefully most of us have grown and evolved from our teenage years because that's what it's about. But I was really insecure and I wasn't the one of the cool kids and people picked on me like crazy. I was in band, marching band and concert band. I played the flute and the piccolo. And yes, I've heard every American pie joke on the planet and it's not funny. So don't even try. (laughs) (laughs) And... I was really, you know, a school nerd. Like I did all the honors classes, all the AP classes. 
And despite being first chair in the whole school, so first chair means you're the best in your category. So for flute, I was number one in the school since sophomore year, grade 10. And in academics, I was graduated third overall in my class and was in the running for valedictorian until my senior year as well. And I played tennis in high school. I was a varsity tennis player and I really wanted to be a pro tennis player when I grew up. I loved it. I loved it so much that it was my first job and I played eight hours a day one summer, which is actually not enough if you want to become a professional tennis player. You need to do it like your whole life, not just for a summer. And I was uh, one of the top tennis players at school and you think that that would be enough to have confidence in yourself, but it, it wasn't. And people can sniff fear People can sniff out insecurity and that makes you a target. So people used to like throw gum in my hair and push me around and say, like I'd make a joke in a group and people would just tell me to stop talking and I wasn't funny. And I was in, and it was in band and it was actually a quite toxic environment for me. And it really messed with my mind. And in my senior year of high school, I decided it was because in my calculus class, there was a couple girls that were runners and they were soccer players. And they had talked about how they wanted to do running, maybe run a marathon someday in their life. And I latched onto that idea. And I thought, a marathon? Well, okay, I guess I'll just start running, like Forrest Gump. (laughs) (laughs) Minus the beard. (laughs) Minus the beard, except sometimes, no. But the chest hair, yes. (laughs) You know, we have some medication for that. It's all (laughs) Yeah, so I started running uh, my senior year. So I would, and I'd also go to the gym because I opted for early dismissal that year. So I would go to the gym and go running before I'd go to tennis practice. And my life started to change when I started running. And for whatever reason, for me, finding an endurance sport, endurance sports are so solo, but I would go out and I'd run four to six miles a day. I'd run to the gym for transportation. And running absolutely changed my life. It really just, I don't know why, but I became way more confident in myself. I noticed that year that people started treating me differently. Like I wasn't getting picked on anymore. I did quit band that year also. So maybe that had something to do with it. But just in general, like it wasn't only in band where I didn't fit in and where people picked on me. And I found this just newfound confidence. And I started, I ran a marathon when I was 18, like with no real knowledge. It was like my second or third running race ever was a marathon. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty unusual for young people. I, you know, I don't think you see a lot of teenagers getting into endurance sport because it takes a bit of discipline and practice and, and all those things. But yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I really think that endurance sports gives you a, a confidence in yourself because you're out, you're out there. It's just you. It doesn't matter. In team sports, I think it's, it's great to be able to interface with people and learn to work as a unit. But when you're on your own, there's things where it's 100% up to you. If you want to run or ride or whatever up that hill, the only person that's getting affected if you don't do it is you. So it really boils down to back to you again. Yeah, I think you're right. When it comes to team sports, you know, that is one of the greatest parts of team sports is working together with other people. But the challenge becomes is if you're not getting what you want out of your career or out of a, a situation, it's easy to point the finger because there's other people in the field or other people on the court. And to take responsibility for yourself isn't the same. You, you know, when you're on your bike or when you're running, it's you. You either came whatever position you did or you didn't. And you can't say, well, if it wasn't for this person or the coach did this. or So, yeah, absolutely. It allows you to take responsibility for your success. I mean, and hopefully as well for when things go, don't go well, you take responsibility for that. I've heard people blame their coach or blame. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would have gone to the pros if it wasn't for my coach. No, I'm just kidding. I, there, was, there was no way on earth I was going anywhere. But it's easy. Everyone who's had a coach has always had a 
a, you know, a story, right? Or they got the shaft or they didn't get treated fairly or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, just making excuses when things don't go your way. And that really boils down to perfectionism and worrying about what other people think about you. And why else would you make an excuse? Because no one's really going to be, no one's going to know unless, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in an event, if there's people watching you and people wanting to ask about how it went and it didn't go well, you're always looking, people are looking for someone else to blame because they don't want to say, I just wasn't good enough that day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and I think that does come back down to that starts to roll into belief and self-belief as well. And then how do you extract that, extrapolate that from your performances or from your sport in general? Yeah. And some days you just aren't good enough to win or, but the point is that you just do your best for what you have on that day. And a lot of people ask me if I have anxiety around racing and I do, I mean, everybody does. And if you didn't have any form of anxiety whatsoever around a race, then that means you don't really care. And that's not really good not to care, but it's how you manage your anxiety. And for me, like anxiety of wondering if how you're going to feel that day. Like for me, I'm not really worried necessarily about how I do, even though I do want to win. I'm worried that I'm not going to be at my best, at the best, best, best that I know I can be. But what I do is I just show up to a race and I say, I've done my best to prepare for this. And sometimes it's not exactly how you like. Like an example is, I'm racing the Transylvania Epic mountain bike stage race in a few weeks, and I had all these great expectations and this great plan of how I was going to prepare for the event this spring. And then all these setbacks happened. All these things happened that I couldn't control. Like after the stage race in New Zealand in February, I got sick and I'm always just so diligent not to get sick to the point where poor Matt was, (laughs) he was sick before the race. And He was sick for five weeks, five weeks. And I was like, I can't get sick before this race. Like Gordon's my partner, Gordon is depending on me and I don't want to be sick. So there was a week where I actually wore like a surgical mask around the house and slept in another room. It's extreme. (laughs) Poor Matt had to get treated like a leper. And the irony is I still got sick, but it was after the event. Yeah. Sometimes the best plans still don't work out. Yeah, so I got sick and I was sick for six weeks. I had like a sinus thing that wouldn't go away and I couldn't, like I could only do easy recovery rides and I did a hundred mile race that didn't go the way that I wanted. And then I had all these trips planned and it was, they were planned for a reason in the way that they were that I was going to be able to train really hard in March and early April and I wasn't able to because I was sick. So then my preparation for the Transylvania Epic has been 100% the opposite of what I've wanted it to be between sickness and I've had a couple crashes in the last few weeks. So it's just been really hard to swallow that I'm not prepared in the way that I want to be for this race. So how I'm managing my anxiety is I made the best of all the situations I've had. I'm going to show up and I know that it's not going to be like the best preparation I've ever had, but I'm still going to show up and I'm going to do my best. And it's going to be good. It has to be good enough because there's nothing else that you can do. So long story long, whenever you're doing something and you really want, you're like worried about it. All you have to do is say, I'm going to show up and whatever I have that day, not based on what I felt like on other days, but how I feel that day, that's going to be good enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, easier to say and and harder to do but yeah absolutely i think that's the only approach that really works but i have a question for you rolling back to the band geek status i've just got this picture of you and i've seen pictures of you with is it the baton or no that's your flute no that was a flute and i did wear the hat with the plume (laughs) that really cool hat and everything which is awesome no wonder people love it (laughs) exactly but my sort of question is really sort of around sense of identity because that's really hard when you're in school high school grade school whatever you people down south call it 
but uh, <laughs> he's Canadian. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a little bit different up here. But my question was really around sense of identity because you sort of are very focused on doing well at whatever you achieve, what you're working on. So you work very hard at academics, at whether it was band or tennis. So when you switched out to running, was that a, a big shift? Was this a, re, a really b- a pre-planned change of identity, or was it just, hey, that looks like fun. I'm going to go. I'm going to try that, and the identity sort of followed along with it. Yeah, I wasn't a pre-planned thing at all. I just started running, and I loved it. And yeah, I, I did kind of change and identify myself as a runner, self-identified runner. But I was still kind of a tennis player in the back of my mind too, because I loved it. I had like Pete Sampras posters on my wall, and Andre Agassi, and Pete Sampras was my favorite. And I, I actually videotaped his tennis matches, and I would watch them like every single day, and I loved it. So. I had a lot of identities actually, but running was the one that really stuck with me. Like, yeah, I'm a runner. I'm cool. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm cool didn't come with all the other things I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine the band thing wouldn't have been cool, but yeah. Well, he, Matt was in band too, in case you guys were wondering, but. That's cool. It's very cool, right? Band is cool. You're right. But he was in jazz band, <laughs> which is the, the cooler of the bands apparently, but I, I really think. <laughs> There's a think, whole spectrum in the band geek world. <laughs> I'm really thankful that I played a musical instrument growing up. And I think that music is so important in our lives and right now I wrote a blog post a while ago how I'm going to learn piano and I haven't been executing on that goal. Matt got me this awesome uh, vintage piano for my birthday. It's really cool. But learning how to play music is just you use your brain in such a different way and being a part of something it's kind of like being on a team but when you're making something a sound and you're playing as a group together and everybody has their own piece and how it sounds it's just so so important like it was such a big thing for me how I felt after one of those days where everything just went right it's kind of like being in flow with the sport yeah absolutely I'm playing a team sport or playing basketball you would sort of say you'd be in the zone when you just simply can't miss you're making every decision perfectly you know that you just it's effortless and and when you're playing in a group of in a band with people and and you're playing well when everything is clicking like it's supposed to it's almost those rare moments like in sport and you get a really similar high out of that a very similar rush of like being in the zone even though it's not sport related or physical related you're you know you're standing there playing your instrument Um, it's really interesting that you get a very similar kind of a rush out of that so i feel lucky that i had that opportunity in school to have that because once i got out of school i basically stopped playing instruments for a long long time and, and it wasn't until you know years later where i decided i need to have that part of my life again but and again it's now just playing guitar mostly on my own sometimes jamming with sonia which is really funny because neither one of us really know how to jam so. yeah we're like we want to jam we both play <laughs> what guitar do we do? how do we do this <laughs> <laughs> so yeah but at any rate it's still music is now a part of our lives which is awesome and fun and if i hadn't had that as a younger person i think i you know i would have missed out and it'd be more difficult to add it in now yeah maybe not be as empowered to have music in your life because it's something brand new yeah yeah absolutely and it's a new challenge too which is a little less intimidating when you know you've done that before yeah yeah and i think that that state of flow i was just thinking about it when you were talking and i just read this awesome book by scott jurek called eat and run and he talks about that as well but Basically, like when you're in that perfect state of flow on your bike or whatever, like in music and in any sport, it's because you're 100% present in the moment and you can't think about anything else. And you're only focusing on what you're doing And your brain. I think your brain waves change whenever you're doing that, whenever you're not worried about what happened five minutes ago or what's going to happen later. And that exact moment of presence, it's you have to be focused. If you're riding technical trails, you have to be thinking exactly what you're doing right now or you're going to crash or 
when you're playing music, your brain has to be focused on playing music. You can't think about anything else while you're doing it. I mean, it's, it's just such a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's even just as a relaxation thing, I find that music is helpful for that to come home. You've had a long day at work or a stressful day. You know, when you're, like you said, when you're playing an instrument or you're engaged in your sport, um, you have to be present, especially, you know, those technical moments on a bike. You know, we talked a little bit in the past about, you know, yoga and meditation and can you get similar things on a bike? And if there is any crossover there, it would be in those moments where you're 100% present. And on a bike, sometimes you have to be forced to be if it's a boring, long fire road climb. You're, <laughs> you're, you're breaking all over the place. But when you're downhill and you're shredding and there's all kinds of decisions to make, um, yeah, you have to be all there. Otherwise, it'll be really painful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've had some painful moments recently because <laughs> I wasn't all there. So, yes, I... So I'll go back to running. So I ran a marathon when I was 18, the Duke City Marathon. Woo! It's the Albuquerque Marathon. (laughs) It's called the Duke City. I can't really remember why. It probably has something to do with the Duke. (laughs) The Duke of Albuquerque. The Duke, yes. The little known Duke of Albuquerque. Yes. So I ran this marathon when I was 18 and I loved running. And the next season of running, I did a few more 10Ks and the UNM cross-country coach, I went to University of New Mexico and I was in college now at this time. And he asked me to come run cross-country for the college. And I thought that's pretty cool offer. And this was probably in May. So it had been like the end of maybe freshman or sophomore year of college. I can't remember exactly what year it was. But then something happened. I was also going to the spin class at the gym because I would get injuries all the time from running because I didn't actually know how to train. (laughs) So I'd, I'd always have something hurting. Some So I went to spin class for cross training. And this guy at my work said, hey, uh, you want to go mountain biking? And I'd only been mountain biking one time before, if you actually call it that. There was this guy that I liked, and he asked me to go mountain biking, but I was really just a beard because there's this <laughs> other girl that he liked, and he invited her too. And I didn't even, like, I had no idea even how to ride a bike, really, except for when I was, like, a kid. So they just basically dropped me and then just dropped me and never came back. So that was my first experience (laughs) mountain biking. So I went home with the tail between my legs. And then this guy from my work, who was not a love interest, (laughs) just a friend, he invited me to go mountain biking. And this was right before my 20th birthday in that, that summer I'm describing. And I, I didn't think twice about it. I said, okay, cool. And it was me and this other guy so there's two guys and me from work and I, I really enjoyed these guys company they're really funny and I borrowed or just maybe stole my brother's old bike from middle school and my grandparents would occasionally get us new mountain bikes and actually maybe it was my own bike I can't quite remember but it was like a $300 full suspension so it was a pretty rad bike full suspension that's impressive I know this is like so modern I know it's <laughs> <laughs> like one of the first full suspensions ever invented yeah. So I went with these guys and I loved it. And three weeks later, they said to me, hey, there's a race. Do you want to go do it? And I was like, nah, I'm a runner. Like, I don't know how to mountain bike race. And this one guy, Joe, he's like, oh, it's okay. You're just scared. And I can't handle it like that. If you want to get me to do something, just threaten me that way. And I said, I'm not scared. I'm going to do it. And then I signed up for the race. So this is one of those bookmarks that I'm going to put in here as an example of trying something. And for me, I'm always trying to get new people to go mountain biking. And it wasn't a scary thing for me to try mountain biking. I just said, yeah, like, I'll go. I don't know. I never thought, oh, what happens if I crash and fall down? Like, I never had those thoughts that went through my head. So I think that goes with the willingness to try and to just not be afraid of the outcome. Like, I, I didn't even think about it. But with the race, I was afraid because I didn't really know how to do it. 
Yeah, and I, it's interesting you think about sort of that as a metaphor for failure. Like if you're afraid to take a, a chance, it's because you, you might fail. Or in, in mountain biking, it's quite literally, if, as a new rider, you're afraid you're going to fall off. And I think a lot of new riders are really afraid that, you know, they're going to get on their bike and fall off. And they're right, they are probably are going to fall off. But guess what? It, a, it doesn't happen that often. And it's usually not nearly as bad as you think it's going to be. And again, it's a great opportunity to learn. Like, okay, what did I do wrong there? How can I improve on that? And then you get back on and you're a better bike rider. And so I think that's a really good analogy for, for a lot of things in your life, not just bike riding. Yeah, not be afraid and if and expect to fall down. And if you fall down, it's okay because all you got to do is dust yourself off, get back up. Sometimes it takes you a little bit of time to heal from whatever failure or fall or whatever it was, but you just have to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Whether you're crashing off of uh, A-frames or whether you're <laughs> starting a new business. I mean, there's always an opportunity to, to learn from those events, even though it, it does take you some time to recover. Yeah, for sure. So I went to this first race. Uh, it was called the Watermelon Mountain Classic in the Sandia Mountains. And Sandia in Spanish means watermelon because the Sandias look like watermelon whenever there's a sunset. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so I show up. I got suited up for this event. I knew exactly what to wear. Not. <laughs> so I think I had like a $30 chamois. <laughs> At least I knew to wear padded shorts. Mm -hmm. I didn't wear underwear underneath because a lot of beginners wear, that sounded a little nasty and dirty, but a lot, <laughs> but a lot yeah, of- That kind of podcast. <laughs> yes. Gonna have to take the clean rating right out of here. <laughs> But a lot of times beginners will make the mistake of wearing underwear underneath their bike shorts. But because I was a runner before then, the running shorts have a built-in underwear. So underwear with my running shorts. So I think that's how I knew. So underwear aside, <laughs> I put my chamois on at the house. I wore a running shirt, like a wicking shirt. And I filled up a 100-ounce camelback because who knows how long you're going to be out there. And I was out there quite a while. <laughs> I drove like an hour and a half or so to the start in the chamois. I did the race. I don't remember anything about the race except for going through a valley and trying to shift and my bike would not shift. I wonder why. So I had to like walk a lot because my bike basically wasn't working because it was like a piece of crap. <laughs> and I also remember it registering. And this was the New Mexico State Championship, the first mountain bike race I ever did. And they, at this time, they weren't kind of regulating what category you signed up for. So there is beginner, sport, expert, and pro. And in New Mexico, pro and expert are the same, they race you in the same category because there wasn't very many people at the time racing. So there was three women in the beginner category and there was no one in the sport category. So I thought, wait a second, all I have to do is sign up for the sport category, finish, and I'm a state champion. Like, I gotta do this, this is awesome. I had no idea what that meant. What that meant was the race was much longer than the beginner category. And I thought, well, like, I've ran a marathon before, like, who cares? I can do this. So I was the last person to finish. I'm talking, everything's broken down. It was just me and the race promoter at the finish line. And I was stoked because <laughs> I won. I was also last place. And then I drove home in my chamois. That was my first mountain bike race. <laughs> go big and go home. That's That's, that's right. Awesome. And wear a chamois. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like jazz. I said, okay, I'm doing this. Like, I'm mountain bike racing now. So I went and I spent all my money on a bike and I went to the bike shop and said, hey guys, I need a hill climbing bike. Just, I don't know what to buy, just tell me what to buy. And they sold me the wrong bike. They sold me an old, it was like a specialized enduro. It was over 30 pounds, but it had disc brakes, so it was cool. Man, you could have shredded the downhill on that. If I knew how to ride downhill, but oh, yeah. I didn't. But <laughs> <laughs> So the next race was a hill climb. So I show up again, <laughs> drove in my chamois. I think I might've had a real bike jersey, I maybe not. 
And I did a hill climb on an enduro, like, 30-something pound bike with a 100-ounce camelback, which you're not supposed to... That's not <laughs> ideal. And it was great. And from then, um, I was hooked. And I had I met a couple really important people who... Two individuals that helped me so much get into cycling. And um, one of them is Nina Baum, and she's she works for Cannondale now. But she has been such a great influence on me, not only in cycling, but just in healthy eating and helped me kind of figure out, like, who I was. Because I was, like, 19 years old, 20 years old at this time, and I was a little bit delayed in my personal development. So, yeah, it was just really great to have an impact. And the, and the other was a guy I met, and... Um, he was a pro racer, so we, we dated, and I followed him around to bike races, so that was pretty helpful to be able to go race around New Mexico and Colorado, and kind of the rest is, is history, and it all became, I mean, now I'm the 24-hour world champion. I've raced my bike in more than 20 countries. I'm a real pro. I make a living racing my bike from sponsorships, and I've seen the world, and it's all because of a series of decisions, but every decision has been the same. Like I'm going to get out there and I'm going to ride my bike. And it's crazy. Like I've met Matt because I ride my bike and just a little tiny decision you can make can change your entire trajectory in your life, which I'll get to in a moment. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And the same for Matt, like he wouldn't have met me if he didn't ride a bike either. Yeah. That's a really good point. As a, you know, playing a team sport is, is harder, you know, as you start building out your career and you spend longer hours at the office or whatever it is that you're doing and the individual sports so much easier. You can pick the time, you can pick the place. You don't have to wait for uh, the team to show up or a scheduled field time or whatever. So for me, it was moving through, I was playing soccer and basketball and men's league and enjoying that, but it was really challenging to do it with any sort of regularity. So I got into cycling as a kid in BC, everybody rides, I think like most places, everybody rides a bike. When I was younger, I did the odd, we had a, they used to call them time trials and we do the odd time trial at our backyard. And my dad was a mountain biker and he got into mountain biking. So at the age of 40, yeah, he was in his early forties and, uh, and started riding then. So as a kid, I started riding. And when I got to university, I was riding pretty regularly and some friends that had gone pro or in, I got the elite level, I suppose, what I'm going to call back then. And I knew that at that point, there wasn't a, that big a gap between us. And I thought, you know, okay, if I want to go and do this as a pro, I at least have an opportunity to work hard enough to see if I can make it. But I went to university and then ended up playing basketball instead. So I put the bike away for 10 years or so and didn't ride at all, really. And then uh, started riding again just because I wanted to be healthy. And uh, I met a friend. He was the owner of a bike shop in town here. And he said, hey, you know what? I ride before work come meet me at the back of the shop and, and we'll start riding. So I jumped on a road bike and started pedaling again and, and doing group rides and, and then getting more into mountain biking. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm hooked. I found a group of guys that uh, were great to ride with that were into training and racing. And I was just sort of getting going down that path of wanting to race regularly to try and find a weekend race to go to. And But yeah, it was a great way for me to go out and say, hey, this weekend, I'm going to go see another town. I'm going to go do this race. I'm going to go and try and finish this one. And yeah, and then who, you know, who would have guessed that you meet uh, your future wife at a race? But that's exactly what happened. She might have, uh, you know, not remembered meeting me for the first few times, but if you're (laughs) persistent enough. (laughs) It is true. (laughs) It is true. Uh, But at any rate, yeah, it it absolutely changed my life in a lot of ways. It helped me believe in, in myself and believe on in my growth as an athlete, even if I wasn't, you know, as a team sport athlete, you think when you're 21 or 22, you're almost at the peak of your powers. And by the time you're 25, 26, 27, the clock is ticking and you hit 30 and your career is over as an athlete, pretty much. I mean, the, the, 
basketball players that are playing in their mid-30s are out there, but there's not that many, and there's very few in their 40s, if any. So you think, yeah, you're, you're on the this, this slow decline, but um, when I found cycling, I found a way to grow as an athlete, all these new things to learn, all these things to improve. So yeah, it was very cool. It definitely had a huge impact on my life. Yeah, and I think this is a great point, and I posted on Instagram about this a while ago, that a lot of us get into cycling because someone invited us. So you mentioned the guy at the shop. For me, it was the guys in my work. And I don't know why. I mean, I'm sure there's examples of people who got into it just on their own on a whim. But it's so important to invite people to go ride with you because that's how you get more people on the bike. And the amazing thing about cycling is that it transcends everything. Like when you're out riding, like you don't ask, I mean, I don't think you do. You don't really talk about like what you do for work. Like you don't meet someone and say, hey, what do you do for work? You talk about your bike riding because that's a common connection you have. And at stage races, especially when you spend seven to 10 days with people, you're all there from different countries, you know, different jobs, different socioeconomic. I mean, you have enough money to go to the race or or to have barely gotten there. But it transcends everything, gender, what country you live in, even language barriers. There's there's races I've been to where almost no one speaks English, and you make friends with people that don't speak English because of you share bike riding and there's body language and whatever. You, like, you actually don't even need to be able to speak the same language to make friends. Yeah, it's an amazing community, and especially being in a stage race is really cool because it is a, it's a sort of an equalizer. It's not about who you know rolled up in what car, what neighborhood you live in, or whatever kind of weird you know status thing you want to use as a, an example for status. That's all gone. You're all sleeping in tents. You all got crazy hair in the morning, and you all <laughs> you know, bad breath, bad breath. You brush your teeth because exactly. you're trying to make the start. Exactly, you're rushing to the start. But that's the cool thing as well is that you all have a very similar experience, whether you're first or last you can sit down and have a conversation like hey what did you think about that part of the race or how did your day go or so it's really cool and you get to sort of see sort of the real person underneath right there's no hiding behind other people or you know your your success in other areas so it's it's pretty cool yeah yeah so i went from riding my 30 pound bike <laughs> at these <laughs> races i still ride about a 30 pound bike my enduro bike but i don't race it in cross-country races <laughs> And at the time I was going to school for engineering. So I have my bachelor's in electrical engineering and my master's in electrical and biomedical engineering. And I became an engineer because when I was in school, I loved science and math. And I thought maybe I'll become a math person, a mathlete. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll get my all major in math or maybe I'll major in biology. But I wanted at the time when I was 18 years old going to college, I thought I'm only going to school for four years. Then I'm going to get a full-time job. I'm going to make money and I'm going to buy a house and then I'm going to get married or I don't know what order I had those in, but my only concern was getting a job so I could make money. And that was before I really knew who I was or what I wanted in my life. And cycling really helped me figure out who I was and what I wanted in that regard. So once I started riding my bike, my priorities started shifting a little bit. I was racing and I was going to school, taking like 18 credit hours. I was working 20 hours a week as a student intern And I was riding and racing and I thought, man, like this engineering thing, I don't know if I really like it. And I realized I was attracted to the challenge of it because it's very difficult and it's a lot of work. But I realized that I just, I love working hard towards a goal. And that's, in hindsight, that's what got me through. It wasn't that I loved engineering. In fact, there was days where I hated it, but it was the the fact that I just enjoyed a challenge. So 
I finished my undergrad from UNM and I wanted to move somewhere with good biking. So I applied to, and I didn't want to work a full-time job. I wanted to have the flexibility of being in school so I could train. And that was my number one priority. So I applied to schools, places I wanted to live, one of which was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and another was in Boulder, Colorado. And I had been to Boulder when I was 14 or 15 for a band competition, actually. <laughs> Marching band competition! Woo! <laughs> but... I ended up choosing Boulder. I had a much better offer to North Carolina than Boulder, and Boulder kind of fibbed a little bit when they told me about their program, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. But I moved to Boulder, and I left everything I knew behind. I didn't know a soul when I got there. In fact, I was there. My first night alone in Boulder was on my 22nd birthday, and there was these guys in this hotel, not a hotel, this apartment I was living at, and I just... I was like, well, it's my birthday and I have no friends. So I just walked up to them. They're outside. And I said, hi, my name's Sonia. Today's my birthday. I just moved here and I have no friends. So I'm coming to hang out with you. <laughs> and they took me out to Walnut Brewery. We had beer and it was a good time. That sounds just about right for you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but th yeah, th so this is another pivotal point in my life was moving to Boulder. And it was the right decision because when you're trying to accomplish something in your life, I wanted to move to Boulder because I knew there was like-minded people there people that love cycling. I didn't realize the extent of what of how it would change my life, but moving to Boulder taught me that, hey, like if you don't want to make your career the number one priority in your life, if you want to have balance, you're allowed to do other things. You don't have to go to, you don't have to go get a job in the field that you worked in. You can do other things in your life. And that was a huge wake up call for me because I thought I'm going to just slog my way through this, get my bachelor's. And now I was in the PhD program in engineering. I don't even know if I'm allowed to like try to be a bike racer. And then I moved there and now like everyone's a bike racer or a triathlete or whatever. And there's like people that have PhDs and they're a barista at the coffee shop because they're trying to go for their dreams. And this whole go for your dreams thing, no matter what, was a really different concept. And my parents always believed in me to go for things that were practical. And that was actually, you know, helpful for what I've accomplished. But this idea that you don't have to be an engineer anymore was crazy to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of us sort of follow the path that's been laid in front of us, especially when you come out of high school, particularly, or if you're still living at home, you're still influenced by your, your immediate environment, which is usually your family. And they always, I'm hoping, and I'm pretty sure with most cases, it's they always want the best for you and they're trying to give you the best guidance. But um, at some point when you finally get away and you get to sit back and sift through all that information to decide which of that is actually going to resonate with you and which isn't, change tends to happen, right? And it's pretty cool that you were able to sit back uh, as a younger person and go, okay, where's the place that's the best place for me to learn and to grow? And not even knowing what was there, but just knowing that in general, that was a good place. So it's a sort of, in some ways, a lucky decision, but obviously very calculated as well. You went, okay, where's the best place for me? And how can I surround myself with the best people in the best environment? And off you went. So I think that's, uh, it's hard for people to do that in general, but it's really hard for younger people to do that too, I think. Yeah, I was like going to Colorado every weekend to go do the Mountain States Cup cross country races. It was called, I don't know what it's called anymore, but I wanted to move to Colorado because I love mountains and everybody was had they had all the good races. So I thought, well, duh, it makes sense to live there. So in grad school, I I still didn't really like what I was doing, and I kept slogging through. And now my world got turned completely upside down. I went from being this like super high achiever in everything I did to my first semester having the ground fall out from underneath me. So I was in the engineering program. I took nine credit hours, which was considered a lot. It was gonna be my first year as a pro racer. 
And I had a relationship in New Mexico and it had been a long, for me, a long-term relationship of a few years and everything went wrong. Like I worked so hard and I wasn't getting the grades I wanted. I got two B's and a B minus my first semester, which sounds not that bad, but I was a straight A student my whole life. And in grad school, two B's and a B minus equates 2.9 GPA. And in undergrad, I graduated like the top of my class. And a 2.9 GPA in grad school is considered failing. You're failing out of grad school. So after first semester, I went from being, I'm the smartest kid in the school, in the engineering school, to I'm on academic probation. And now I have to get a letter signed by the dean so they don't throw me out. That was a, a rude awakening. And I worked hard too. I didn't slack off. And then my relationship fell apart. Like it just wasn't working out. So that ended. And then later in the year, when I started bike racing, I'm a brand new pro. I was expecting for some reason that I was going to do really well. I was not doing well. I was coming like second to last place or last place in most of my races. So it was just like everything that I thought I was and everything that I valued and thought I was good at just completely melted away. And I was just left with myself and my perfectionist tendencies. And I had to face myself. Yeah, that I can't imagine that's a an interesting place to be coming from and then going to at the same time. But obviously you were in the right community to help you with that though. Yeah, and I mean, I think the thing that really helped me was going to yoga because I had these awesome yoga instructors and they taught, like yoga was, I first started going because the, the girls went to yoga, they looked, they had really cool like muscles and they looked all, you know, they looked good and I wanted to look like that. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna go to yoga because I wanna look good and I wanna be more flexible because I'm not very flexible as a cyclist. But then it became so much more than that. And I learned about accepting yourself for who you are and accepting life for what it is today and the impermanence of life and how nothing is going to stay the same. And these instructors, they just always said, and it's because I was open for the message, but they always said almost exactly what I needed to hear. And yoga was almost like therapy for me. And there were times like I wasn't like bawling, but there'd be like tears streaming down my face in yoga because I was working on radical self-acceptance. And it really helped me heal those wounds and figure out like, okay, I'm not number one in everything and that's okay. Like I'm not a bad person. Yeah, absolutely. I think being a perfectionist is it's really hard to take that to heart, you know, and, and learn that lesson, especially as an achiever where you always have worked hard and had that outcome and to all of a sudden have everything that you've, and it's not, again, for some people have had those moments sometimes it's because they didn't put the effort in they should have, but to, but putting the effort in into all those areas where you, you know that you should be getting those outcomes and to not have them, you know, that's a tough thing for anyone to deal with. Yeah, that, that was awesome that that happened. I mean, all the things that have happened in my life, like that I've talked about getting picked on in school has made me a more empathetic person. And now if I see someone standing by themselves or, or someone that might feel like look like they don't fit in, I always say hi to them because I know what it feels like to be that person. And whenever you fail at everything right in front of you, that's an awesome lesson because I learned that that's not a fixed thing. Like I'm not gonna be a failure forever. And that just means I have to either change how I'm working, work smarter, or just keep going. Cause it's not gonna, you're not gonna always get quick results. And this is something I love talking about. And Matt and I listened to this audiobook together, but it's called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And she's this amazing psychologist. And she talks about a growth versus a fixed mindset. and ultimately that we're able to become better and people with a fixed mindset don't believe that and a lot of perfectionists tend to have a fixed mindset and I admit that I did have a fixed mindset at one point and that comes from being an achiever 
at the beginning because you're rewarded on your achievements, not, not on your hard work. So if you're winning at something or getting the best grades or whatever, people people respect you and they like you. Or in this case, the people that you care, like my parents respected me. Other people's school didn't really care as much. But I was not afraid to fail necessarily, but I didn't want to fail. because, And I had never had any big failures in my life. So having that ripped out from underneath me, having the ground fall out was so helpful because it taught me that, hey, like, you don't have to be number one at everything all the time. And there is value in hard work. And that, to me, I learned that success was working hard and doing your best. It's not being number one. And I still struggle with that to this day. Like, I want to be number one at everything. But for me, the biggest fulfillment I have is when I show up and I did my best and I felt good. Yeah, and I think the whole the fixed versus growth mindset when it comes to achievement is it's really interesting. If you have somebody who wins and they have a fixed mindset, they view that as proof of their innate ability. I have a fixed ability and I am just better than everybody else. And that can spur you on to want to work hard too, because you go, well, if I, I know if I work hard, I am just the best. But when they take that away from you, all of a sudden, if you have a fixed mindset, it was just proof that you aren't who you thought you were. You, you aren't the best. You aren't good. You, you don't have this magical thing called talent. And it doesn't make a difference how hard you work potentially because you're not as good as that other person. So when it comes to achievement, it's really an interesting way to sort of self-talk to yourself is if you came second, third, fourth, tenth, the, it's not that you lost or that even you did your best, right? To say, well, you did your best, good job, is less powerful to say, you know, well, the person who came first, they deserve to win because they worked harder than you did and they put in effort in ways that you didn't. So what can you learn from that and how can you move yourself from second to first, from 10th to ninth, whatever that is? So that's empowering to say, you know what, that person deserved to win and I didn't and they did work that I didn't do. And so what can I do to get there is a very different cognitive place to be. Well, I guess I just won't have talent no matter how hard I work. I'll just never be as good as that person or looking down to sort of downstream. I guess I'm just innately better than other people. So I'm just always going to win. So it's a very subtle difference, I think. But when you have that moment where you aren't the best, that's a tough thing when you've believed in in this. I need to be the best and I, I sort of deserve to be the best and it's gone. Yeah, thanks. You said that a lot better than I did, and that's really helpful. <laughs> that's very eloquent. No, we, we do talk about this a lot. Like, so. all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially with kids. Like, when you have a, a kid and you see the kid doing really well, and you say, you know, you just get out there and do your best, that's great. But if the kid or whoever comes in second or third or fifth, and, and they want to be first, you can tell them, hey, you know what? You didn't deserve to be first. You don't tell them, hey, you did your best, and that's okay, and sweep it under the rug. You miss an opportunity to talk about growth versus fixed mindset. And you don't have to be mean about it, but just say, okay, well, if you want to be first, how do you think you're going to get to that place, you know? Or not even with kids, like with me. If I, <laughs> if I don't win, he says, well, you didn't deserve to win. Yeah. And he's right. And, you know, sometimes we talked about, like, someone else worked harder than you. Sometimes you just couldn't put in the work that needed to be done because of factors out of your control. But still, that person still did a better job with what they had to prepare for the race. Or, like, maybe they've been riding longer than you. So there, there's, like, a number of reasons. But whenever you don't get the outcome you want, it should be motivation rather than a negative thing. Yeah, and I think that's when it comes to competition, that allows you to view your competitors with a lot of respect and enjoy competing. And it can be a very healthy thing for everybody. But when you're very tied up with, you know, proving your ability and proving you're better than other people, it can be a negative thing. And you can have a, you can be not a very nice competitor. 
So, and I think you see that in all kinds of sport, but certainly in cycling, there's some people that are, that they will turn themselves inside out to beat you and try and crush you, but they are nice people. They're not jerks on the race course and they're nice people after the race course. And we all know those racers that aren't those people. They, they can be they're harder to deal with. So yeah, it's sort of certainly true in sport, but also in life too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I still struggle with these perfectionist tendencies. And last year, I partially is due to burnout, but I did the single track six and I I won the single track six and it was a very competitive field. And I I am proud of that. But for me, someone put this, I think it might've been in that Scott Jurek book. He said something like, it's not that I love winning, it's that I hate losing. And that is a very fine detail of how you say that. But I'm the same way, like, and that's not necessarily a healthy thing. I don't necessarily love winning, but I hate to lose. And I do lose, like I lose frequently, but I hate losing. And I'm not a sore loser. I can still be happy for my competition and I can still work harder. But that doesn't mean that, I, that I'm enjoying losing. And that is coming from a perfectionist mindset and always having to battle up against that to look for the positive things in a situation. And at the single track six, Every single day, except for a little bit on the last day, I was ahead of everybody. Like I I was able, I was strong enough where I could just ride away from the field and stay away all day long, every day. And you think that I'd be like so joyous and so happy. I'm winning, yeah. And I was miserable every day. And I thought there's something wrong here because I'm winning this race. I'm like, I should be so happy. But I was just so afraid that someone was gonna take it from me and that I was running scared the whole race that I had a really hard time enjoying it. And that's a very honest and transparent thing to talk about. And it's a little bit embarrassing for me to even admit that. But I want people to know that like when you're winning, it's not always awesome. And if you're feeling that way, there's something deeper that you need to figure out why you're feeling that way. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I, we've talked a little bit about this before and I sort of joked and said, isn't that, that's, it's a nice problem to have. I can't think of any time where I've been out in front and and winning and and having to worry about, you know, how people are going to catch me or not, but yeah, I think that not everybody gets a chance to be in a position repeatedly where they can say, I enjoyed this moment, but I didn't enjoy this one. And what was the difference between those two? And and maybe for those people who aren't winning, it's simply, or if it's if they're age group racers, or if it's up against a personal best or whatever it is, it's it's a very similar kind of a thought process along the way. So, you know, how do you view your current situation and are you doing what what's motivating you? And can you take those thoughts and make them positive in a way that motivates you? Or does it just become debilitating and and not fun anymore? Yeah. Yeah, so I'll keep moving on here. So I wasn't very good when I was a pro at the beginning. And I worked hard. Like, I worked really hard for a decade before I started really seeing good results. Like, four or five years after my being a pro, I was getting on the podium in Colorado at their cross-country races. But I just felt like I was kind of spinning my wheels. And then I finished grad school. I opted out with a master's degree. And I was working for a startup. And when I first started working there, I said, it was a solar company. I said, I don't care if you pay me less, but I need to be 100% in control of my schedule so I have time to train. I will get all my projects done, but I need to leave in the afternoons. I'll work in the evenings, whatever. So I was lucky that I was stubborn, but that I took a job out of grad school that allowed me to have time to train. But I kind of got to a point, and this was in 2008, 2009, where I thought, I'm not going anywhere. I've kind of plateaued. I don't really like cross country racing anymore. Should I give up? And I actually started taking classes to go to PA school, physician's assistant, which is like a nurse practitioner. And I thought maybe I'm done racing. And it's because I had plateaued and it just wasn't really that fun anymore. 
And then something interesting happened. This was a big change. So I was on the Sobe Cannondale team that year. It was my first like kind of real team as a pro mountain biker in 2000. I don't remember if it was 08 or 09, but it was cool. Like it was a national team. I still had to buy my bike, but it was for a good price. And I felt cool because <laughs> I was on a real team. And I, uh, where am I going with this? So I was on the team and I got, we had the team sponsors and the team sponsors would all send us some stuff, um, some free product. And I got this backpack or no, I didn't get a backpack. Sorry. Um, I got some grips and they were ergon grips. And I was like, what are these things? And I put them on my bike. And then that year I went to Sea Otter, which is a big bike festival. And we went around and we're saying thank you to all of our sponsors. So I was at the Ergon booth saying thank you to our sponsors. And they had this really cool backpack and they ended up giving me the backpack. And I was like, wow, I got a free backpack. This is awesome. (laughs) So I went home and I had a blog that I had started. And I didn't think anyone actually read the blog. I was just writing about my bike adventures. I started the blog in 2007 because I thought, well, I'm traveling around Colorado. I should at least write some stories about it. So I wrote a review on this backpack on my blog. And then I get an email from Ergon and they're like, you've sent so much traffic to our website, people buying this backpack. We'd love for you to come be on our team. And that was the start of two things. Number one was, huh, like I don't need to be winning races to have people want to sponsor me and be on their team. That's interesting. It's because I wrote a review on a backpack and they're selling backpacks. This is kind of different. And number two, huh, like maybe I don't need to be an engineer anymore. Maybe I can do something else. So I actually started doing marketing for them as well, uh, going to events and working with them on the side while working as an engineer and racing. So it got to a point where it was too much. And I said to Ergon, like, hey guys, like I'm working a lot for you already. Do you guys want to just give me like a full-time job with you? And they said yes. And it was to do sales and marketing for the US and Canada. And like at the time, it was a no-brainer for me to take this job. So I quit my engineering job. And I took on this new role, um, traveling the country for Ergon to go educate people on the brand and to help build the brand. And like looking back, I've done lots of interviews about this. People say, well, that's a pretty crazy move. Like you just quit engineering and you went to do sales and marketing like for the country. Like that's a for a brand. Like that's a really big change. And you didn't have any training in that. Like most people just wouldn't have done that. But for me, it was a no brainer. And this again goes back to the self-belief and the willingness to try something new and just say, hey, I'm confident enough in myself where I know I'll just figure it out as I go. Yeah, and I think that's hard to do when you have no background. And I think people use that as a barrier all the time, whether it's starting a new career, starting a new business, starting a new sport. Well, I don't really know what I'm doing and I'm not sure it's going to work out well. But yeah, just to say I believe in myself enough to know that I can learn and I know that I can work hard. So I'm going to do my, this is a new opportunity. It's fun, it's exciting, and I might fail. And if I do, that's okay. But I know that I can learn, I can work hard. So let's give it a shot. I think that's, um, and I think with a lot of people in their own lives have those moments and they're sort of forgotten sometimes. They've had that one moment and they did that and then that that was 20 years ago. But for a lot of people it's to remember, yeah, those times in your life when you made that decision, things tend to work out really well for you. Yeah, those are major pivotal, pivotal moments in your life. And it was awesome that Ergon believed in me too to offer me this job. And it started from a blog post on a backpack, like something that I just did that changed my life. I mean, it really did all start with a blog post about a backpack because my friend, Jeff Kirko, he works for Ergon and he was working for Ergon at the time as well. He said, hey, like, why don't you do some endurance racing? Like, why don't you come do a 50 mile race? And I thought, "Mm, okay, I'll give it a go. 
So I went to like South Dakota and did the Dakota 5.0 and I, I did a few of the endurance races and then I decided that I was going to do a 100 mile race. So my first 100 mile race was the Breck 100, which is incidentally one of the hardest 100 milers like in the entire world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did that and I realized that I loved endurance racing because it was so different. It wasn't about beating people. It was a, a very personal game that you had to play with yourself because you probably aren't going to see anybody and you're doing these like you're out there for like eight nine ten some of the races I've done have been up to 24 hours by yourself and it's all about the mental game of how are you going to get through this and I could talk for hours on that and maybe there'll be another podcast but endurance racing just really clicked with me and I happened to do well at it like I would work hard and then I'd win races and I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm, I'm more inclined to do endurance racing. And then I did, the Breck Epic is the first stage race I ever did. And it was a brand new race in Colorado. It was the beginning of stage racing, really. Like, there's other stage races around the world, but this is in its infancy. And I think this was in, like, 2011. And Jeff and I raced as a team, as a co-ed duo. And it was, it was hard, but it was fun. And then the Brazil ride, uh, Race in Brazil contacted us and invited us to this race. So we went there and raced as a co-ed duo again. And that was one of the hardest races I've ever done. Like the conditions were brutal, but it was probably like 35, 40 hours of racing in a week. And it was way beyond any endurance I had done. And it was one of those things where you're like, I'm never doing this again. This sucks. And then you finish, you're like, when am I doing my next one? I love this. How many times (laughs) have we done that? Exactly. It's a common endurance racer's mantra (laughs) halfway through. Why did I sign up for this? Yeah, my friend Jason Sager said, if you don't feel like quitting at some point during the race, then you're not doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's normal, actually. Like a lot of even pro endurance racers, you you, you feel like quitting and you don't quit. And having that experience over and over of feeling like quitting and going on, even no matter what position you're in, you could be winning the race and want to quit. Been there. (laughs) Um, it's, it's really a cool thing about racing is that it's so hard that you're, everything's telling you to quit. Um, not the whole race, but there's just these really dark moments and you push through and you press on and you come back around again. And it's just a really important lesson. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, like to hear you say, well, you know, I sort of switched my focus from cross country to go to endurance racing and, and I seem to be doing really, really well, which is awesome. And you did put in lots of work, but you basically started endurance racing and started with a huge degree of success right out of the gates, which again, fixed growth is mindset, you can say, well, you have a natural aptitude for endurance racing, which you do. But by the same token, you'd already put in 10 years of training up to that point. It's very different. And I can relate this to myself, who's a newer endurance racer. I haven't been cycling as long and consistently cycling, we'll say. And to switch from, it's interesting to see as I try to do these 100 mile races and I go, oh, how hard can that be? Just sign up for 100 and off you go. And it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. But it also builds upon itself and it builds upon itself, the physical and the mental and all these things. So you've had those opportunities before you started endurance racing. And then the more and more and more you do, you stack those on top of one another, the mental ability, the physical ability and training and, and all those things that they develop over time. And that's a cool growth thing to see. But in your career, it was great to see for you, I had sort of re-engagement at the point where you're probably ready to go, ah, there's nothing really left for me here anymore. And then you find this whole new world of, travel and, and big races and, and all kinds of new adventure yeah and just challenge like I just started racing stage races around the world and I did that like I couldn't afford to do these things like I wasn't making very much money at all but I thought how am I going to find a way around this so I thought well what if they give free media entries so I started asking like hey if I write a feature article for a magazine can I have a free entry because it's going to promote your race 
and I would get free entries and saved race entries are like a couple thousand dollars. So I, then I'd go to a magazine and fortunately I had been writing for long enough where I actually had the skills and the ability that I started writing feature stories for magazines and getting paid to do that and then getting a free entry to a race. So I'd take the money I would make writing for the magazine, apply that towards a plane ticket and I'd have to cough up the rest of the money elsewhere, but I just had to get there. And then I could do these races and it really took off from there. And it's just been amazing to have done, like I don't even know how many stage races I've done, more than 20. And the experiences I've had, winning, losing, all of the above. I've DNF'd at one stage race in Costa Rica where I got so ill that La Ruta, on the stage that I dropped out, it took me three hours to go six miles. I was so weak and I, I was just trying to keep going, but I knew I'd be ending up in the hospital if I went any further. But it was just amazing. And then there came a point where I was working for Ergon, traveling a lot for Ergon. I was on their team, but I, I needed to grow some more. And I just really felt that I needed to quit the team and quit my job and try something new. And the thing that scares me the most in life is stagnation. And I was kind of treading water at this point, And I really just needed to do something else. And Matt said, well, why don't you just do it? Like, do it. Quit your job. Quit your team. Incidentally, I was also moving to Canada that year and getting married that year. So in one year, I quit my job. I quit my team. I moved to another country. I got married. And then I started my own business in one year. And again, that comes back to the, the willingness to try, to believe in yourself enough to say, I'm going to do my best to make this work and I'm willing to take the risk. Yeah, and knowing that that if you fail, it's it's not going to be that bad. And it's not permanent. Yeah, it's kind of like falling off your bike. You know, most of us have ridden our bikes and fallen off. And you know what? <laughs> Nine times out of ten, it's not that bad. You Sometimes you get a, a scrape or a bit of a bump. But for the most part, you pick yourself up and you just keep on riding. And it's the same way in life. If, you know, the odd time you, you do have a bit of a crash and things don't work out, most failures are very momentary setbacks and you often will get more positive out of those than you will any negative in terms of personal growth or new skills or new education. So, yeah, I think um, that was certainly my motivation for pushing you to say, hey, just do it. Not that you needed much of a push. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I did that by this concept of the backpack when I wrote the blog post and someone wanting me to be on their team because I wrote about a backpack and putting those together over years saying, Okay, well, maybe sponsorship, and this will be, I'll do an entire podcast on sponsorship because I know lots of people are wondering about this, but sponsorship isn't just about going fast and winning races and standing on top of a podium. It's about selling product, but doing it in an authentic and real way. And it's about building community. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll write proposals to all these brands that I want to work with. And fortunately, most of them wanted to work with me. So I was able to use all the products that were my dream products, dream bike, dream, you know, drivetrain, clothing, whatever. And then I could really authentically tell people this is the best stuff because I love this and I've chosen to do this and I would be buying this stuff on my own if I didn't have them as a sponsor, this a specific brand. And that's a really powerful thing. And it's really easy to tell people like, I love this because I actually love it. And the worst thing ever is when someone is saying, use this, and they don't actually love it. Like, being inauthentic is, is so brutal. And so, it's actually really hard. Yeah, and I think especially as our ways of advertising, the way we advertise has changed, the way we connect has changed. It's no longer just you can be in a magazine ad, let's say, with your face on there promoting a product 
take your paycheck and walk away. Now, if you say, I believe in this, there's social media, there's all these things, you can't escape, quote, the feedback from people who might have bought the thing that you recommended that's a total piece of junk. So you have to be responsible and authentic because people won't believe you. You get sort of one shot at that. Once you blow that credibility, it's gone forever. Yeah, and like people send me like customer service and tech questions that are meant for the brand because they want to know about, they want to know like, how do I fix this or whatever? And being there as, like you work for the brand. So you work for every brand you're with, you're representing them all the time, not just as a pro athlete, but as, as a marketing person, as a customer service agent, as a salesperson, like people want to know about these products. But because you're somebody that's removed from the brand, you become even more a better resource for it because you're going to tell them what you think. Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, I think is why brands want to be working with people like yourself is that that your influence is based on relationship and not just, quote, sort of status or celebrity. It's, yeah, you know what? I follow Sonia on social media XYZ and I get to know who she is. And if I write her a question, she'll write me back. So that is a lot more power than advertising with a, a static medium, I think. Yeah, or I've seen the abuse that she puts her, her, her <laughs> exactly. through. She rides these like gnarly trails in BC. She rides in all weather conditions or like she's taking this bike over the Himalaya. I think that that really brings a lot of credibility to the products other than like, yeah, this is a really long topic that we should talk about some other time. But like, yeah, like social media influencers. I love this topic because I study this every day. I, I'm fascinated by it. But someone that looks pretty and stands next to a bike and say, or, or whatever and says, hey, like this, this is awesome. They're trying to promote it that way versus someone who's actually doing something with it and actually like pushing this product to the limit. Who's going to have a stronger influence? The, the hot person standing. I mean, maybe this is debatable, but the hot person standing next to the bike or the person who is actually crushing it, using it. And I think it's probably, I'm sure it's debatable because what isn't? I just love to argue in general. Yeah, and, and sex sells for sure. <laughs> but sex does sell. But that being said, it's also measurable. So in a social media platform, you have much more metrics than you do in a magazine ad, for example. So you could look at engagement. You could look at, you know, whatever, click through all kinds of stuff that, that I'm not the expert on that you are. But in social media, you get a much better sense of who your audience is and what they're actually doing with the content you're providing. Whereas in static medium, you're not. You don't really know. Yeah, all you know is impressions, and that's really easy. Like, if someone buys a magazine ad, they can say, well, we have 300,000 subscribers. But that's not really a good way to measure if this ad is effective or not. Yeah. But that's a whole other topic. Uh, we have digressed a little bit, and we'll start wrapping it up here. But basically, I wanted to tell you guys kind of where I'm at, and I'm always evolving my life story to grow and to push myself into places outside my comfort zone to learn new things. And this podcast is one of them. It's, it was definitely, I wanted to start this podcast back in November and <laughs> I made up my mind one day in November that, Hey, I'm starting a podcast. And it was because I was listening to the rich roll podcast. And I'll include that in the show notes. He's been a, a huge influence on me and I've never met the guy, but he's, he's been a really great influence on me. And I started my podcast because of him. And so that day I said, I'm starting a podcast. I went and bought a microphone and then I was like, all right, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't actually release the podcast until a few weeks ago. So it took that long and it's longer than I would like to admit it took, but it took me a little while to get going with this because I had all these barriers in front of me. Like how, okay, how am I going to do this? How long is it going to take? How do I even get started? Cause it's actually quite complicated. 
and actually sitting down and doing the work. And sometimes it just takes a little bit longer, but this has been a really great growing process for me because I want my podcast to affect people. And I I want to be able to make an impact in the world because I think that I do have some great stories and I know some really influential people that have really inspired me. And I'm hoping that I can bring that more into light so that people can find the best version of themselves. And I'm so passionate about that. Yeah, that's awesome. And another just sort of quick example about, you know, just deciding to make a change and go for it is uh, with Sonia would be her speaking career. So one day we're sitting around talking about Sonia's growth and her business model and what's going to happen next. And she said, you know what, I'm just going to put my website speaker because I do that already. Like I go to bike shops, I give talks, I'm, I'm talking at conferences already. And so simply by putting out that tab on her website, professional speaker, she instantly was being booked for keynotes and all kinds of things. And the irony is, is that it was simply just putting it out there and just saying, I want to make that change. And that ended up being a TED talk as well along the way. So it was, it was pretty cool to see. And now this is the latest version of that, which is the podcast, which is, hey, I I know some really cool, amazing people that have influenced me in my life. And I, and I want to be able to share those stories. And I mean, hard work aside, you bought a microphone, you make a few phone calls and, and off you go. So, I mean, in the background, there's all the hard work that, that people don't get to see. But it, that's always the constant, no matter what it is that, that's happening in, in your life or anyone else's. If you want to be successful, there's lots of hard work. But when it's enjoyable and fun, half the time, it doesn't even feel like work. Yeah, you have to start before you're ready. Like that's no, you're never going to feel ready. If there's something that you want to do, like whether it's like a bike race or like a conversation with somebody, you're never going to feel 100% ready. And if you wait till that perfect time to do it, you're going to be waiting forever. Like it's not going to happen. So yeah, the speaking thing, (laughs) I like put this tab on my website a few years ago and yeah, people email me and they're like, okay, well, what's your topic? I'm like, oh, what's my topic? And say, hey, send us some slides. Okay, I'll make the slides today. You know, don't tell them. I didn't tell them that, but I wasn't really ready. And then it all of a sudden just started happening. So I just had to adapt to it and just keep going and, and learn as I went and it went really well. And it, it keeps happening that way. So just getting started and just doing it you learn as you go. Like, don't worry if you don't feel like you're qualified. Like, I mean, there's a certain point where you need to be a little bit qualified. Like, <laughs> <laughs> don't try and be a doctor tomorrow. Don't, don't give yourself <laughs> stitches. <laughs> but yeah, if there's something you have in mind, you just have to get going on it. Even if it's like a little step, one little step in the right direction. Maybe it's writing a review on a backpack on your website you think nobody reads. I mean, you have no idea the impact you're going to make out there just by doing something. It's so crazy. Like if I look back at my life and just say like, man, if I just like sat there and said, I'll just, I'll try that later, or I'm not really qualified to to write for a magazine or, or whatever, like I would be in a completely different place. And so just doing the thing that you want to do, whether it's like the podcasting, it's like I bought a microphone and it took five months for something to happen for me to even get it out there, but I got it out there and you just have to start taking steps baby steps in the right direction like what about bob baby stepping <laughs> you guys should really watch that movie but yeah so yeah, i think that's a good spot to wrap it up today uh, this was a little bit longer than i was planning but hopefully you guys found some value and enjoyed some of our stories and matt thanks so much for spending your time tonight to hang out with me my pleasure it's always my favorite thing to do and now we're gonna go cook some awesome food for the week bye 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 That was so awesome to have Matt be a part of the show today. He's such an amazing and supportive human being and husband in my life, and I'm really lucky to have him. I hope you guys enjoyed his inputs too. 
If you like the show, please share it with your friends on social media or just telling them about it. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. I also have this available on Stitcher and Google Play for those of you who aren't Apple people. And it really, really helps the show if you leave a review on iTunes. So go to the search bar in Apple Podcasts and type in my name and there's a middle tab that says reviews. And some of you guys have already done that already and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And if you wanna support the show even more, I have a Patreon page. The link is also in the show notes. And what that is, is a monthly commitment. It can be as little as $5 to help support the production and the travel associated with bringing you guys such great guests and you also get something in return so for each category of donation I send you something and you can even get some private coaching sessions with me thanks so much for listening to the show today it means so much to me and I really really am thankful that you guys are here along with me on the journey and I love hearing your comments on the show and if you want more from me more Follow me on social media. I'm on basically everything. Um, most active on Instagram and Facebook. And that's Looney Sonia, or just type my name, Sonia Looney, in Facebook. And I also have a newsletter that you can subscribe on the website. My goal has been to send out bi-weekly emails, but it's been a little bit more infrequent than that, but I'm working on that. Wishing you all the best and success in your training and all of your adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>